Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Sunday, May 31st, 2020, where you have, what, now 90 minutes before the curfew, <laughs> curfew is that correct? <laughs> yeah, or? I gotta take the dog out one more time. Um, yeah, it's, <sighs> it's, uh, it's, uh, we're recording this on a sad day, a sad weekend, a sad yeah. week, but we're hoping that we're going to give you guys something to look forward to and something to laugh about for, you know, 45 minutes. And that's all that we can we can ask for. But, you know, yeah. everybody's well, safe well, and everybody is OK. So that's that's the good stuff. Yeah. I guess for me, the irony is yesterday afternoon to watch the SpaceX thing and to just sit there and, and the fact that it worked and they, they launched Earlier today, we, you know, Nancy and I were watching them hook up at the space station, it's and that we are we are capable of doing this. Yes, and yet you look at the footage coming from all these cities around the country, and it's just one of these things where it's like, how is it we can do that, but on the ground we can be this hateful and this stupid, you know? Yes. Um, well, and Jim, you've been you've been around for a few more years than me. Do you mm-hmm. did you ever think that we would still be dealing with this, like? As a people, just, you think that we would have I, evolved? I, no, no. I mean, th- no, that's it exactly. Though what's kind of interesting is that these are the one little bright sparks in a, a very dark time. Have you seen the, the footage from the cities where they didn't have incidents with the police, where the police actually marched with the protesters? No, because, that's great. Yeah, I mean, you know, or they took a knee because they got what was going on here. So, hmm, I don't know. As Drew said, we got to try to make you happy. Everyone's upset right now. So, let me tell you what I found in Target uh, on Saturday. Always my favorite kind of story, Jim. Go ahead. Okay. So, uh, Nancy and I were at Target yesterday, and we're, you know, we're doing the social distancing. We're wearing our mask. You know, we've just gotten more cat litter and treats for our two ungrateful cats. Good. And we are taking the shortcut through the toy aisle to get out to checkout. Mm-hmm. And I look to my left, and it's like, are, are you kidding me? Here is this solid wall of Minions, the Rise of Gru toys. And it's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> somebody Nobody. forgot to recall. <laughs> yeah, somebody missed the memo. And it's just, and honestly, some of the toys, like, remember how in the very first Despicable Me movie, there was the fart gun? Yes. Well, I'm pleased to report that given this is the rise of Gru, his early days, among the things that you can purchase in, in your, your local Target right now is a tiny toot. It's it's a, a <laughs> fart-firing <laughs> man's blaster uh, wow. for role-playing. Because again, that's what you want in a moment where we're all still sheltering in place at, at home. It's like, let's arm the kids with a fart gun. And, well, you know, could, just, did, you, did you get any sense of like what the movie was based on the toys? Like the plot or anything? You got um, one of the playsets, for example, is Young Gru's Lair. It can't, it can't be that big because he's only got four minions. Right. <laughs> Again, I just kind of felt bad because it's like if Universal is following the same business plan per usual, this is the first of three waves of merch, Drew. Because remember, you know, this movie initially wasn't supposed to open until, what, what, the last week of June, early July? I think, yeah, July this year, yeah. Okay, so six weeks out, you get your first wave of merch. So you pre-sell that out of anticipation. 
Then you have your second wave of merch, which capitalizes on the actual theatrical release, followed by the third wave of merch, which is supposed to support the release on on home video, the premium video on demand. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I, I really hope somebody can make the call to at least slow down those other two waves of merch. Yeah. On the other hand, again, you know, this is just how the business is. You know, these things were ordered years ago. You know, they've probably been on the slow boat from China since January, February, just as things were getting disrupted. So it's not like they could put a halt to them. Right. Listen, we all have seen the ugly Sonic merchandise on the stores. We know how long this stuff takes to fix. So, well, now, now, you know, speaking of Sonic, I don't think I was honestly surprised that there was a sequel in the works. But what was your take on this? Well, did you did you ever see it, Jim? Did you watch Sonic? You know, it, it again, it's a, on that ever-increasing pile of things that I actually have to sit down and watch. In fact, later in the show, we'll be talking about the new Looney Tunes at HBO Max, which I'm getting to tonight after we record okay. this podcast. And likewise, Central Park, which I was listening to the soundtrack in the car and I thought was wonderful and got to see a couple of clips associated with it. But, you know, it just you, there's you just There's behind. so much, Jim. I know. Even when you can't do anything, you're still far behind. Fall behind. It's crazy. Story of my life. All right. So anyway, all right. So you liked the... I liked it. it. Yeah, I did. I thought it was fun. But I mean, it very clearly sets up a sequel at the Mm -hmm. end of the movie with the introduction of Tails. Okay. uh, I think he's a squirrel or something. Maybe he's a fox. He's a fox. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So Tails is introduced. But yeah, I mean, it, it... wasn't hugely expensive to make. It made a bunch of money. It's a family movie. I think it's sort of their Jumanji almost, like a very reliable family Mm -hmm. franchise. Uh, Paramount doesn't have a lot of franchises to sort of build on. So I, I, this, yeah, this seemed like a foregone conclusion, but it's, uh, it's nice that it's official and people are getting paid and working and all that stuff that is not happening that much these days no, um, no. in Hollywood. We're always happy when somebody in animation is getting a check. Uh, in fact, what's been kind of interesting, I, I can't reveal who has just been hired, but they're staffing up for Space Jam Legacy. They're kind of in that situation where, because nobody can actually come to the studio, you know, they're hiring mm-hmm. some very talented veteran animators to basically work from home on the Looney Tunes characters. So it'll be interesting to see how that film turns out next year, right? That's that's when we're due to get... Yeah, Okay. we're supposed to. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I can draw a pretty good uh, Marvin the Martian, so maybe... <laughs> I'm available, Jim. That's all I'm saying. I'm available. Okay, I'll, oh, I'll put in a word. Okay, now... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now, speaking of well-drawn, I've seen the one sort of sample episode that's out there for the new Looney Tunes show, but you're through about half of them now, you were saying, right? Yeah, or? they're yeah they're really good. There's 10 up right now, mm-hmm. and I think they're about 11 minutes each, and it's a nice combination of, you know, it'll be like a Bugs Bunny cartoon and mm-hmm. then a... Um, Tweety cartoon, mm-hmm. or, or you know, some there'll be different sort of combinations: a Roadrunner cartoon mm-hmm. and a Yosemite Sam cartoon, or whatever. And it, and the animation is really wonderful. The voice work is pretty uniformly excellent, mm-hmm. and they sort of reinvent the characters. I think, and I think the the sort of playbook that they're basing this on is the Mickey Mouse shorts, which you and I adore. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know that some people have you know varying opinions on it, but I think it's great. We both love it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's really really special, and I can't wait for you to start your free trial tonight and just watch them all okay, in one I, big lump. 
my Sunday night is shaping up to binging, you know, the Looney Tunes show, and then step <laughs> right into a brick and Morty. So it's like I know it's always a challenge to stay up until eleven thirty on a Sunday night, but well, that Rick and Morty is worth it. No, 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 it is. You know, it, it just seems like, especially the second half of of this season, it's Rick and Morty. Literally, it's a, I dare you to like us. I. Dare you get it? Just sort of like, you know, the the writing has been so strong and so good, but at the same time, they keep walking out these ideas that are so, you know, antithetical to entertainment. I don't know. Really appreciate what they're doing there. Listen, but, Jim, if if the two main characters can conclude an episode by pooping their pants, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm there for it, Jim. I'm oh, absolutely there oh. for it. <laughs> And that's entertainment, folks. Okay. <laughs> now, all right. Are the news items, you know, other show coming back? Yes. Like, uh, Fraggles. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, a- am I allowed to say that I appreciated the Fraggles? I wasn't necessarily entertained by the Fraggles back in the day. I mean, I... I really? Well, Jim, you were also not... Let's see, what what is the word I'm looking for? A child in the okay. <laughs> Mentally, yes. Okay. And, yes, yes. You know, but, you know, if you, you drill down into the Henson story, you know, Fraggles was really about Jim trying to, we have to take care of the planet. We have to be better to, well, actually, yeah. you know, actually today, maybe that we have to be nicer to one another. It's like, wow, why does that message suddenly right. resonate? But that's the thing. Those of us who got in on the ground floor with the Muppets, you know, virtually every skit they did ended with either an explosion or another Muppet eating, you know, another Muppet on stage. There was chaos. There was anarchy. And the thing of of Fraggles is they're nice. They're very nice. You know, there's a talking trash heap. Right. You know, I it got to the point where I was waiting for the gorges to show up. It's like, okay, when did the stupid people get here and do fun things? So, well, I, I think there is an aspect of Fraggle Rock that you do love, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the two characters that Jim played, Cantus and mm-hmm. Honest John. Okay, and how those sort of reflected the two halves of his personality in a lot of ways. <laughs> The kind of showbiz hustler and also the very kind of serene, spiritual, hippie type guy. That's, um, oh, that's an excellent insight. You're right. Yeah. That, you know, I think you know. that that's an element that you can appreciate. And also the song Cantus does is one of the best mm-hmm. songs that was ever was ever sung by Jim. But I, I, growing up, this is showing my age, but growing up with the Fraggles, mm-hmm. I'm very excited to have them back. And Apple Plus has all of the old shows now. Even though they said we're never gonna we're not gonna just buy up libraries, mm-hmm. all of those shows are now on Apple TV Plus. So that's that's cool. Okay. You wanna go back and watch it? I'm a big uncle you not you're not an uncle traveling Matt fan. Oh, Jim? okay. I see now you're now you're reminded. <laughs> now now I wanna go watch it. Now uh. No, you're right. But it is a very gentle yeah. um, you know. And and, and again, you know, I just Needed a little Stadler and Waldorf in there, you know. Heck, so all right. Anyway, you, I, you can do that yourself at home. You can be this. The, is the, true. <laughs> this is true. And speaking of show business hustling, look, we've talked about this on a couple of recent episodes of fine tuning. But 
Drew and I had so been enjoying that Kevin Lima was putting up concept art from Monkeys of Mumbai, the DreamWorks animation feature that effectively got cut off at the knees by, you know, the $4 million or $4 billion acquisition of DreamWorks animation by NBC Universal. And so it was so nice to get to see what this film, you know, was potentially going to look like. Just recently, we got some test animation, which really sort of nailed home that there was honestly a movie here and, you know, it had spectacular design and that sort of thing. And and then, you know, as I think you and I both feared, Drew, the lawyers found out about this. Um, yes. So can you talk about what just happened or... Yeah, I mean, it, basically, uh, somebody from Universal put a cease and desist on Kevin Lima's, you know, mm-hmm. sharing of this production artwork. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the tweets are still there, but they just stripped out all the animation and all the images. Mm-hmm. So you'll see his thoughts mm-hmm. and you can actually still read about the story. Yeah. But all of the drawings, renderings, I mean, some of it was pretty finished. That animation of them swinging on the um, oh, telephone wires. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was so beautiful. And it was so so close to being done and mm-hmm. being put into a movie. But and yeah. did, did you see any of the, that they had a brief chunk of the the villain? I mean, it, it switched back and forth. Oh, from that was so cool. Yeah, no. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it just, uh, I don't know, it just, it kind of breaks my heart that we live in a world now where there are other options. There are, yes. you know, the Netflix of the world where you can do a Klaus or a, a Willoughby's or that sort of thing. And we've just seen Popeye come back from the dead. You know, yeah. there was a part of me that really hoped that Kevin's Hail Mary here was going to get attention from somebody and maybe finally get this movie made. But Listen, Jim. Nobody's going to watch Peacock unless we get Monkeys of Mumbai there you go. on there. There you yes. go. All right. Uh, what else? What else have we got? To... Oh, I know you're a Wallace and Gromit fan. Uh, yes. What did you make of this Ardman thing? The, the... <sighs> well, again, it was just sort of a commercial teaser trailer. Yes. Kind of so, uh, yeah. Did you, did you understand what this thing is exactly? The big fix up. So yes. it's, is it a, it's a game? It's an augmented reality something, app something, mm-hmm. which which makes me think of something like uh, Pokemon Go um, mm-hmm. or something. But the description of it is really insane. It, it says it will mm-hmm. harness various media, including multi-user AR gameplay, in-character mm-hmm. phone calls, comic strips, extended reality portals, and more. Um, and the story is that they've hired Wallace and Gromit to fix uh, Bristol which is where Ardman Animation <laughs> is located. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it's the first time that you're going to see them in, in CGI, which is really interesting. But it seems like a huge project. It says that it's a joint initiative from Ardman Animations and Fictioneers, mm-hmm. a collaboration between three British digital media companies, Potato, Sugar Creative, mm-hmm. and Tiny Rebel Games. And also the University of South Wales is providing research support and the project is backed by a multi-million dollar grant from the public body Innovate UK. So I guess for me, my, my only problem here is the consistent message of every Wallace and Gromit film I've ever seen is that the more technology gets involved in something, the worse the outcome. That's true. You know, and That's true. To me, this actually sounds like 
the premise of a Wallace and Gromit movie. Yes. You know, we're we're going to make this highly involved, amazingly complex machine. And then at the end, we're going to watch Wallace and Gromit frantically running from the teeth of this thing, you know, all, it almost being consumed. And right. so, so to hear that it's this technically involved, it's like, oh, this is going to end well. I'm sure it'll, it'll be fine. But, <laughs> Hopefully that element uh, will be in the gameplay, though. That would be fun. Like, you know, things be. going haywire be. and whatnot. So... Yeah. I just love um, it. I love him so much, Jim. No, no, no. Same thing here. I'm always glad to see Wallace and Gromit back. In fact, this makes me want to go watch Curse of the Were-Rabbit or The the Wrong Trousers again. But but it was just so nice to see them. Yes. At the same time, I have told you my story about when Disney was going to be remaking Journey into Imagination. Yes, but I don't know if everybody else knows this story, so why don't you share it with us, Jim? Okay, so I have a good friend, Justin Jorgensen, who was working at Imagineering back in the late 90s, and during that period was when the contract initially lapsed for Kodak. And this is the point where Kodak is spinning in because film is being replaced by digital cameras and that sort of thing. And so the the folks back in Rochester were like, look, we don't have the money to do a big redo of of this attraction. And Disney's like, well, well, hang on, let's... let's talk. And it's the whole notion of, okay, so if we don't have a lot of money to necessarily upgrade and improve the attraction, what else can we do? Well, we can bring in a celebrity host. And it's like, what? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, we've got Dreamfinder, we've got Figment, but, you know, they've been there a while and and maybe it's time to replace them. So the people who are in charge of imagination will... Well, who could we get? And so, well, hang on, let me get you the list. It's like, we have a list? And it's like, yeah, we, we've cut deals with various folks. These are the people who Disney is currently looking for projects to give them homes. Right. You know, Justin calls me one day and it's like, you're not going to believe this. I, we're considering a host for the Imagination Pavilion. Well, who? And it's like, well, right now we, we're staring at two choices. One is Michael Jordan. And the idea was that the setup for the attraction is basically you would be digitally inserted into Michael Jordan's imagination and watch his thinking process. But the other characters that that Disney had just gotten the theme park rights to were Wallace and Gromit. That's the one that's always intrigued me because, you know, I mean, face it, people are still angry about the Dreamfinder being taken out of Journey into Imagination. But if they replaced Dreamfinder and Figment with Wallace and Gromit, that could have been cool. That you know. could have been really cool. I remember when Disney was making sort of overtures of, to Ardman as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I told this story before, but when I was at, I t- was taking a stop motion class at the Disney mm-hmm. Institute, mm-hmm. RIP, and the, my instructor said, oh yeah, uh, Nick Park was through here like last week, and they were trying to sell him on all the stuff that Disney could do for, for Ardman. Which was really interesting to me, especially that even as a kid, I was obsessed with Wallace and Gromit. So um, <laughs> it, it was very, it was very close to happening at one point. It's interesting that they had the theme park rights and never did anything with them. Wow, that is intriguing. All right, one final Nick Park story. Well, yes. Okay, the folks at DreamWorks have been nice enough. When Curse of the Were Rabbit was about to be released at theater. So Nick is doing his standard, you know, they're doing the press tour. So they bring him out to Boston. 
And, you know, you know the drill, Drew. You get your 10 or 15 minutes in the tiny little room with the person and you put down your digital recorder. And so, but Nancy's a, a huge fan of the Wallace and Gromit films. And so we go into the tiny room and here's Nick Park with Wallace and Gromit, the, clay, the plasticine figures of Wallace and Gromit on the table. And so I begin to interview Nick, but Nancy's sitting there next to me. And, you know, at one point she's, oh, they're so cute and goes to reach for them. And Nick you know, literally picks them up and moves them closer to him. It's like, you can't touch those, <laughs> you know, that, that, and, you know, and Nancy left a little bit crazy crushed because she was that close to Wallace and Gromit and couldn't touch them. Now, the very next day, in fact, you folks probably remember the story. You know, Nick is down in New York finishing up the press tour and takes a cab over to the venue, but he's got Wallace and Gromit with him in a brown paper bag, gets out of the venue, walks in, goes upstairs, and goes, oh my God, I left Wallace and Gromit in the cab. And I want to say it took a day or two before they finally got returned. But Nancy was like, well, you know, he won't let me touch them, but he leaves them behind in the cab. (laughs) That's kind of a bone of contention for many years here at the house. But I I think through years and years of therapy, Nancy's finally put it behind her. That's interesting that they were doing that because for the last movie... Early mm-hmm. Man, a movie that yep. you, you and I have both already forgotten about completely. But mm-hmm. uh, they had actually set up sets in the Beverly Hills Four Seasons. And as I was talking to him, we were walking around these giant sets with giant puppets and everything. It was so cool. It was wow. like you were in that. Yeah, it was really, really neat. And Nick, was, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Nick is like the most lovely human being ever. Uh, Except when he doesn't let you touch Wallace. Yes, Gromit. exactly. But anyway, not to Nancy, <laughs> not to Nancy, but everybody not to else. Nancy. You know, you know. Wow. Uh, well, it's not like we're saying Nick is a monster. And no. speaking of monsters, <laughs> when we get back, Drew and I are going to talk about an animated monster movie that almost got made by Universal. Now, I I have to say, Drew suggested the topic for today's feature, and it comes on the heels of this wonderful news story that Drew has written for Collider. It's basically exhaustive report on... Hopefully not exhausting. No, it's it's, it's wonderfully entertaining, but it's it's the 45 high points of industrial light and magic in in honor of the 45th anniversary of the launch. Yes. And I got to say... I don't want to pile too much praise on here, but it's damn near definitive. But at the same time, when I say exhausting, all I can think of is you had to watch all 45 of these movies (laughs) to sort of... Well, I kind of like cherry-picked what I rewatched, but, you know, it's Mm -hmm. hard because they've they've done so much and they've done so many different types of movies. And you didn't want it just to be all Star Wars stuff. Yeah, it's sort of like the 45 most unforgettable Mm -hmm. moments for ILM. So even if the movie sucks, like I had the ejector seat um, sequence mm-hmm. from Die Hard 2 in there just because it is so mm-hmm. iconic. Jim, you remember this being in every trailer, every TV spot, every pay-per-view advertisement, everything. And it's just, well, you, know, you know, so ingrained. But what were you going to say? Well, no, what's what's so funny is you're right. That's great effects work. But then do you remember the match shot at the end of the movie, that the genuinely terrible shot of like you know it's it's you know, oh with all the planes on the on the tarmac. Care to guess which you know visual effects house painted that mat? Uh, is that was that a was that Dream Quest? Yeah, that was the folks at Disney. Yeah, 
And that's the thing. You know, I looked at that and it's like, this is Disney. This is, I mean, Disney, the king of Matt. You know, think about it. You know, for the very first ILM movie or the very first Star Wars movie, they actually hired Harrison Ellenshaw, who just made the appearance yep. for Tron on Prop Culture. Oh, my God. How amazing was that Matt shot? The, the, <sighs> I, I never even thought about that being a Matt shot. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, yeah. that was the thing. You when you know, you had other studios seeking out Disney to do Matt shots. And here we are, you know, jump ahead just 10 or 15 years after that. And it's like, this is the type of stuff you do. You know, a four year old with crayon could have created more you know, believable planes. But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to. I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I'm being mean here. But anyway, it's a wonderful article, well worth seeking out. But you mentioned that, you know, as you were trying to figure out which of the 45, there were things you had to cut. And among them, mm -hmm. well, obviously, you can't talk about the Frankenstein movie that ILM made because they never made it. Yes. You know, but at the same time, you can go online right now, folks, to YouTube and see the 17-second long test that Universal had commissioned you know, to sort of sell the board on the notion of this is what we should be doing. Well, I, I guess we need to tell the story right. You know, I mean, face it, just in the past week, we saw the announcement of the Ryan Gosling werewolf movie. Um, yes. Okay. And you and I both know over the, the, the past 20 years or so, we have seen numerous attempts to relaunch the classic Universal monsters. We've had, mm -hmm. what, Dracula Untold with Luke Evans back in 2014 and The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro. Still, got, still going to therapy for that one, Jim. Yep. Well, like, yeah. But that's the thing. That's Joe Johnston. You know, I mean. Yes. Now, mind you. That, but that was him. At the, he, he came in at the last minute. That's which, it. Exactly. You know, he, that was literally a rescue mission. And he, he did what he could. And let's not forget about Van Helsing back in 2004. Intriguingly enough, there were also attempts in the same period to get a creature from the Black Lagoon movie going. And yeah. Did, did you see, though, that for a time, Guillermo del Toro was the guy assigned to do that? Yes. And amongst many others. <laughs> well, I know, I know. You know, I, I love Guillermo. In fact, let's yes. be honest here. He did get to make his creature from the Black Lagoon movie, yes. Shape of Water. But not to deliberately pass it by, but we did get The Mummy with Tom Cruise back in 2017, which we'll discuss later in today's show. Yes. But the interesting thing is that you know, Universal had recognized they had this whole body of films from the 30s and the 40s that had made huge money for the studios. And there was still tremendous interest in the public, but they could never get it relaunched the way they wanted. And then Toy Story comes out in 1995. And, you know, it's, it's kind of nuts to, to talk about this now, but you, know, you can remember that there was some hesitation about doing, you know, a full-length animated film in CG because it was like, Will people watch this for an hour and a half? Didn't we answer that question back in the 30s with Snow White? But, <laughs> you know, but there were still executives like, wow, it looks hard. It looks, you know, lots of shapes. I don't know if people will go for this. But Universal, on the other hand, is looking at the amount of money that Toy Story made. And, you know, here's DreamWorks. They get their own. Which of the companies did they buy again? Oh, uh, oh. Pacific Data Images. There we go. Yes. Uh, PDI. Yeah. And they get ants going. And meanwhile, of course, Pixar is working on the follow-up to Toy Story, A Bug's Life. And here's Universal. And it's like, wow, 
this opens up a whole room full of possibilities. And so they reach out to ILM. And what's kind of interesting about this moment is that ILM has really staffed up for Phantom Menace. And the fear evidently in-house is that they have all of these truly talented people, you know, who are working on the various, the Gungans and the, you know, the droid battle and all that. But there's going to be a two-year lag, you know, at least between episode one coming out in theaters and then between the shooting, they won't have the footage to begin the work on the sequel, Attack of the Clones, for for two years. And it's like, well, what are we going to do with these people? We need a project to work on it. Here comes Universal through the door and it's like, hey, how would you guys feel about doing a CG version of Frankenstein? And not just any version of Frankenstein. What they wanted to try to do was create something that would match the the exact look, style, and tone of James Whale's, the two James Whale movies, the mm-hmm. 31 original Frankenstein and then Bride of Frankenstein from 35. And so that's where we get this 17-second long test, which, by the way, I'm told, Drew, that while the version that's online is black and white, you know, obviously aping the look of the two James Whale films, it was rendered in color. Oh, really? Yeah, supposedly because executives at Universal just couldn't decide which was the smarter play here. Do they go with the classic look, you know, the black and white? Because, you know, the rest of the film's really going to ape the look of the James Whale movie. Or, you know, because there was always that fear that kids won't go to a black and white movie. And speaking of kids, well, all right, they hire, you were the one who pointed out the screenwriters they hired for these. Yeah. These were the guys who had done Tremors for Universal, right? Yeah, Brent Maddock and S.S. Wilson, who were pretty hot in the sort of 80s, early 90s. They did Short Circuit um, Mm. and Batteries Not Included and Mm. um, Heart and Soul, which is a movie that I really like that uh, Robert Downey Jr. was in. Yeah, the the bus crash. Yes, yes. No. That's a, a very enjoyable, and you're right. They were very hot, and and the notion was that Universal wanted this film that could hit a sweet spot. It could be a, a, a horror film, but a family friendly horror film. Yeah, it seems like they were kind of ahead of the curve in that respect too, right? With mm-hmm. like Monster House, all the Hotel Transylvania movies. You know, it's it's like they were sort of ahead of the curve, I think, in a lot of ways no, in no, terms no, of abs- approaching this. Absolutely. In fact, Maddock, in, in an interview with Variety, said. Universal wants something new in animation. They want a fairly dark, edgy cartoon that will be genuinely scary. And that was what attracted us. How scary can a cartoon be? We're going to find out. It must have a real gothic sensibility. We don't want to be dismissed as uncool by a 12-year-old boy, but we want an 8-year-old boy to be able to see this. It's got to be scary. And again, how, how many decisions in entertainment in the 90s were made by 8-year-old boys? Whether it's... <laughs> Breck Eisner, who later was going to do a Creature from the Black Lagoon for Universal. He was. He uh, was. You know, it's yeah. a, like everyone's worried about what the eight-year-old boy is going to do. It's just fascinating to me. Well, they're the ones who, mom, can we go? Mom, can we go? Mom. <laughs> you know. But anyway, again, Casey Silver, the chairman of Universal Picture, he's the guy who set this whole thing in motion. You know, he flat out said, look, we felt it would be tough to compete with Disney in the animation business. But with computer-generated movies, it's more of a level playing field. Okay, so here's the problem. 
It's an $80 million movie in 1998 money. And again, as I mentioned, they can't decide black and white, color. But on the other hand, when Casey gets to see the 17-second long test, you know, ILM delivers it. And Casey says, when I saw that test, I knew the time was right to see Frankenstein again. Anyway, as for the story, it was supposed to basically be a direct sequel to Bride of Frankenstein. There were other Frankenstein movies, though. It's probably been a while since you've seen this film. That's the one that ends with, after the bride rejects the monster, he grabs a lever inside of Frankenstein's lab and says, we belong dead, pulls a lever, and then the miniature of the tower blows up. Right. And you may remember there was a weird former mentor of Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Pretorius, who was helping him out with making the bride. Anyway, as the new film, and it's called Frankenstein of the Wolfman for some reason. Right. Um, Wolfman's supposed to play, what, a minor role in this thing, right? right? Yeah, I don't know if that was the actual title, but that's what the test footage was labeled, I think, and that's why people think that was the title. Okay, so, so Dr. Pretorius somehow survives the explosion. He's got Henry uh, Frankenstein's notebook, and he wants to continue the experiments that Frankenstein was doing. The problem is, in order to do this, he needs one of the neck bolts, the, the things that was zapped by lightning that brought Frankenstein monsters to life. And so he pays to have the wreckage of the tower on Earth, and there's no monster there. And he figures, okay, the, the monster is loose somewhere in the countryside, and that's how the film starts. Pretorius is trying to chase down the monster. Interesting thing, I, I, I came across that Casey, in order to get this thing some star power, Early on, he persuaded David Bowie to come be the voice of Dr. Pretorius. Um, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of Bowie, back in the news lately, because we just had the announcement, uh, we were just talking Fraggles. Now we have the Labyrinth sequel? Yeah. I've heard a little bit about this from some friends at Henson, so I, I should be I should watch what I say. But yeah, I think it's going to mm. be really fun and interesting, this new, okay. this new take. Yeah. Uh, um, are we seeing Jareth the Goblin King again? I think or? this time we're seeing a Goblin Queen, Jim. So be okay. on the lookout for who they're going to cast for that. Could it be a, oh. a returning character, perhaps? Who knows, Jim? What I'm saying is we just don't know, and I'm not going to put it out there. So Wow, okay. <laughs> Professional teasers by Drew Taylor. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, getting back to S.S. Wilson, one of the uh, the screenwriters here. Face it, making a, a CG film in the style of original Frankenstein was going to be a challenge. But, you know, as he pointed out, it's like, you know, this is 1998. This is the year the Titanic comes out. You know, James Cameron sank a ship and killed 1,500 people, all in CG. So as S.S. Wilson says, look, it's a leap of faith at this point, kind of a Jim Cameron saying you can put 1,500 people on the Titanic and make it look realistic. If you're going to be doing a movie with monsters in it and want it to be scary, you know, they, they got to look right. And Jim Morris, the president of Lucas Digital, that's the other thing. This was groundbreaking. This was going to be ILM's first fully digital feature. And he admitted, look, I didn't immediately see how we're going to turn this property into a computer graphic film. But a lot of artists got a hold of it and turned it into some pretty neat work. And now I'm excited. So spring of 1998, the 17-second long test, Lucasfilm premieres it at SIGGRAPH 1998, uh, which was held in Orlando that year at the Orange County Convention Center. 
They were actually looking. I mean, here's the irony. They're, they supposedly agreed to make this movie for Universal because they were looking to hang on to as many artists as possible between when Phantom Menace was being made and when Attack of the Clones was being made. Okay. But they then stared down the barrel of, wow, we're going to need some of the best people in the business to do this. So they were actually at SIGREV recruiting people to come work on Frankenstein. And October of this year, you know, we finally get the official stories leaking out to the trades and talking about how here's Universal spending $80 million to revive a 70-year-old film franchise. Uh, huge roll of the dice, but they get Dave Carson, uh, who's a superstar ILM, you know, been working at FX there for 20 years at this point. He's going to co-direct with Brent Maddock. So, you know, you've got the writer and you've got a guy who really knows effects and it, you know, it looks like all the pieces have come together and they've got the studio behind them. And then in November of 1998, Casey Silver, a guy who's been championing this right from the get-go, is let go by Universal. And that's supposedly because another very expensive to make effects-filled film, Babe, Pig in the City, crashed and burned at the box office in November. I guess they spent $90 million to make it, and worldwide it only sold like $69 million worth of tickets, so... Great movie, though. Great movie. It is, it is. You know, George Miller, you can't really go wrong. But anyway, all right, so now Frankenstein continues to chug along because, you know, a lot of talented people on board, and it had a little bit of momentum. But now Bugs Life comes out, and the execs who followed Casey into the corner suite are like, well... Animation is for kids, right? Shouldn't this Frankenstein movie be less scary or at least funnier? And eventually what happens is Frankenstein gets tabled and Universal then pivots to a more family-friendly property as their first CG film. And that's going to be Curious George with a script by Brad Bird. Have you ever heard of this? I've heard of it. I've never read it. Do you have the script mm. on hand by any chance, Jim? <laughs> no. You know, the thing is, it took another seven years for Curious George to finally get made. And I've got a script for like three scripts past when Brad did it. <laughs> and it's still on its way to, I think at this point, it's about to become a hand-drawn film as opposed to a CG film. And it, it has this weird conceit that whenever the man in the yellow hat, you see the world normally. But when you, you go to Curious George vision, the buildings dance and the cars have smiling faces. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, that's the thing. The entire script is like, and then the way George sees it. But uh, I don't know. I, to get back to Frankenstein now. It was such an ambitious project. 2,000 plus shots. Gary Rydstrom had agreed to do the sound for the thing and was trying to reproduce how the classic Universal Horror movie monsters sounded. Likewise, Danny Elfman was on board to do the score. But the thing, you know, I mean, again, this is kind of classic Hollywood, the way it, it all worked out here. As soon as the ILM version of Frankenstein kind of fell by the wayside, Universal was like, well, we spent all this money working on a new Frankenstein movie. We, we got to do something. And so they hand the property over to Universal Cartoon Studios, which then gets in bed with Bagadassian Productions, which is how in September of 1999, we end up with Alvin and the Chipmunks meet Frankenstein. Wow. Did well enough, you know, in the home video market that the August of 2000, we got 
Alvin and the Chipmunks meet the Wolfman. Uh, so. Well, and at the same time, in May of 99, The Mummy with Brendan Fraser came out. And I think in 2001, Mummy Returns came out. So yeah. clearly yeah. they were thinking about the monsters at Universal, but they just couldn't commit. And, you know, ILM yeah. did this, the effects for the Mummy movies. So. They did. They did. In fact, you know, it's part of your 45 years and 45 top illusions. You you talk about the face in the sand. Yes. I love that moment. It's so good. Yeah. And, and speaking of the Mummy, I feel like we have to go back and touch on, on the 2017 Mummy. because Must we, Jim? Must we? <laughs> well, you know, remember, that was supposed to be the first film of Dark Universe, which was going to be Universal's answer to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, you know, I just recently rewatched it. Again, I have to say... None of this is Tom Cruise's fault. No, not at all. Yeah, but they you watched him in that movie. I don't think any human being has worked harder to try to entertain an audience in a movie in the history of Hollywood. It's true. He's naked. He's fighting Russell Crowe. He's <laughs> in zero gravity, you know, but yeah, I mean it it's amazing how hard he works to try to entertain people, but that film just for some reason you know, it has amazing effects and wonderful sets, but it's just inert. It yeah. just never catches fire. No. But you're right. They have been showing it on FX movies every other day, uh, mm-hmm. I think, throughout this quarantine. Maybe as yeah. a sociological experiment to see how many people are dri- <laughs> driven mad by the mummy. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, seriously, I watched that. It, it feels like he works harder than he ever worked in any of the Mission Impossible movies. And it just, he can't close the gap. He can't make it work. And God, that must have been so frustrating. Yeah. Well, he does what he can. Okay. Speaking of Mission Impossible, you're still coming off of that 100th episode, right? For Light We're riding Fuse. high, Jim, from that 100th episode. But we got, we have not, much like Tom Cruise, we are relentless in our attempts to entertain people. Mm-hmm. A couple weeks ago, we had Ron Moore, who created Battlestar Galactica on the show, who he wrote a, an initial draft for Mission Impossible 2. Mm-hmm. Um this week, the week that this airs, we'll have the second part of our Mitchell Lieb episode, which you really should listen to, Jim, because he's a legend at Disney. He runs Walt Disney Records. Soundtrack, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So okay. he, he tells this great story. And in our second episode, we talk about Daft Punk and mm-hmm. uh, we break some news about Jungle Cruise, which I'm sure we'll you know swing around on. And, and so mm-hmm. after that, we've got many people that are mentioned in this article, Jim. We've got Gary Rydstrom coming on. We've got Roger Guyette from ILM, who's done amazing visual effects for a number of, of movies and uh, uh, so the hits will keep on coming, Jim, I promise. It's Light the Fuse has been a must-listen-to podcast for a while now, but it just, it's just crazy. It seems like just as you get things going well, then you guys move it to a whole different level. So, you know, now, if you're not listening to this, folks, so you really should. And speaking of stuff you could listen to, uh, here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, we got Disney Dish with Lentesta. We got uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. We got Marvelous Disney, the Marvel theme podcast I do with Aaron Adams, the gentleman who does a lot of editing here. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, and I kind of feel bad because we just did a Universal story, but we'll have another episode of that out shortly. There, there's no mummies and money running around the theme park, Jim. It's all right. We, we're we're <laughs> yeah. church and state, church and state. <laughs> well, well, there you go. And I want that, which you know I do with Michelle Valladolid, and that one got a, a little easier to do. What with the you know, world of Disney finally opening up. Um, did you see that went from like a six hour line to no line because you now had to book through the app? 
you know, an appointment yeah. to get into the store. I really want that Pleasure Island hat, Jim, if we have any, if we have any Orlando listeners. That's it. Well, okay. You've heard it, folks. <laughs> show your appreciation, Mr. Taylor. Get him a hat. <laughs> yes. Okay. And i tell you what, if you, you want to also show your appreciation, Mr. Taylor and myself, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only Light the Fuse, but also Fine Tuning. Really, really like what you heard here tonight. If you get over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be helpful. And again, social media wise, if you enjoy watching Disney bloggers get beaten up, where, where can they, they find, <laughs> find you, Drew? Uh, you Drew know. Taylor, T A I L O R E D. I wasn't beating anybody up, Jim. I was just calling somebody out, and then I got a lot of uh, camaraderie out of it. Actually, I think brought us all together, Jim, because there's just one. I- one bad apple, you know, that's okay. That's all right, you know. I, I stand correct. <laughs> okay, uh, that's Twitter and Instagram? or Yes, Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn if you want to give me a job. You know, I'm also available for that. Weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever you got. <laughs> uh, he's a busy guy. Okay, Jim Hill Media Wise, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. And I think that will do it for this week, folks. So thanks for listening. And Drew and I will be back soon with a variety of shows.